Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 13. Uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, we do have some on the, the tables at the sides of the room there. You're welcome to take that and, and make that yours. Um, if, you, if you do pick up one of those, uh, we're going to be looking at page 9 today uh, in the Welcome Table Bibles. We're, we're looking specifically at verses 5 through 18 in Genesis chapter 13. Last week we saw that, that God uh, has sovereign grace for our faulty faith, and we all say amen, right? And because God is able to keep his promises, he's able to, to build our faith. And because we're recipients of his promises, we should be growing in our faith. That's, that's, that's the main idea that we walked away with last week. Today we're actually going to see what it looks like then to exercise our faith by God's sovereign grace. Now, there's a lot in this passage, okay? And there's also an Abram. I've been planning that for a week. Been planning that for a week. I thought it would go better. Sorry. I liked it. Anyway, um, Lot and Abram, Abram and Lot, uncle, nephew, okay? They're going to help us understand that our choices have consequences, um, like choosing to start a sermon with a pun or not, okay? Um, even as recipients of God's grace, we're still capable of making choices that turn our eyes away from the grace that we've been given and, and to bring unnecessary trouble and hardship into our lives. Can you relate to that? We saw Abram last week uh, do that. We saw him make choices that brought hardship and, and turn his eyes away from the Lord. We're going to see that with Lot this week, but today we're also going to see the benefits of keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord and his promises, and so uh, I want to ask for the Lord's help for us to do that, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for your word that's able to teach us and train us and correct us and rebuke us so that we may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. And we pray, God, that you would use your word and your spirit to do exactly those things in our hearts this morning for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're coming up on the new year, New Year's resolutions. I'm going to get out and run, going to exercise, right? How much, does anybody like exercise in here? There's a couple. I see some hands and some nods and some laughs and things like that. Um, I don't like it. You can tell, right? Uh, it's uncomfortable, but it's necessary, right? It's uncomfortable, but, but it's, it's, it's important. Why? Because we want strong muscles, we want healthy bodies, but we don't, we don't like what it takes to actually get those things, right? It takes work. We have, we have to actually be active in the pursuit of those things. In a, same, in a similar way, we want to grow our faith, we want to grow in our faith, but we don't like what it actually takes to grow, Right? Because it's usually through trials, it's usually through discomfort, it's usually through stretching and, 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 uh, and, and trotting and trying that our faith gets exercised. Our trust in God isn't increased unless we're actually given opportunities to trust him, right? If everything's like perfect rainbows and butterflies, we don't really have a reason to look outside of ourselves, but these, often, these opportunities to grow often come in the form of problems. Because anytime we're faced with problems, we're faced with choices. And, and, and the, the choice is to either trust God, God, or to trust ourselves. 
to fix our eyes on what is unseen or to fix our eyes on what we can see. And I will readily admit that it's easier to fix my eyes on what I can see than it is to fix my eyes on what I cannot. Now, I'm not suggesting that our relationship with God is reliant upon the strength of our faith. I think last week's passage made it abundantly clear that it's reliant upon the sufficiency of God's grace, right? It's God's grace that enables us. He gives us grace so that we can actively grow more dependent upon him, though. Our, 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 uh, uh, it's clear that our, our, we're not passive recipients of his grace. We grow. We, we actively participate. We grow more dependent upon him, more confident in him, so that we can grow in our faith. That's what his grace does in our lives. And so here's, here's the idea for today. If we want to gr- our, our faith to grow stronger, then we have to exercise it. By God's grace. By God's grace. And that means that we must choose to trust him when problems arise. And we're going to see that this morning as we dig in. So let's look. Chapter 13, Genesis, verse 1. Or actually, hold on, sorry. I read verses 1 through 4 last week. Instead of reading them again this week, uh, I just want to give a a quick recap um, where we're at in the narrative, all right? Abram's... Uh, has this embarrassing display of, of deception and doubt in Egypt, and, and he and his family, including Lot, it mentions, they made their way back to the hill country east of Bethel in the land of Canaan. So they've gone back up from Egypt into the promised land, uh, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there at an altar that he had previously built. And so we can assume that this time at the altar was, was uh, included uh, confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration and worship. We saw this, this sort of 180 of Abram from the beginning to the end where he chose to trust in himself and he ends with trusting and rejoicing in the Lord. Now we get to verse 2 in chapter 13 and it notes that Abram was rich in livestock and silver and in gold. In the Hebrew there it says that he, his wealth was severe. It's an interesting word, isn't it? His wealth was severe. It's the same word that's actually used back in Uh, verse 10 of chapter 12, and it said that the famine in the land was severe. And so what that's doing is it it ties the Egypt narrative that we read last week together with the narrative that we're going to look at today, and it cues us in on the fact that Abram is going to be presented with another problem. His trials aren't over. So now, let's take a look at what this problem is. Start in verse 5. Now Lot who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the, herb, uh, and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. In the last story, it was the famine that created issues for Abram. Abram, Abraham, Abram, they're the same. I might switch back and forth, just FYI, okay? This time it's an abundance that leads to the problem. Famine last week, it's abundance this week. Verse six says that they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. The land was unable to support them both with all their flocks and their herds and their people. And their herdsmen then began to start arguing with each other about who should get to feed their livestock in the land that they're occupying. Now, we're going to see a few uh, parenthetical footnotes, okay? A a few phrases that are in parentheses throughout this passage. 
And the first one is here in verse 7. It says that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land at that time. Now that's likely part of the reason why the land was unable to support Abram and Lot and all of their people and possessions. But there's also a little bit of irony here. Because you have two pagan nations that are able to dwell together in this land and you have two righteous men who can't. When we read this and we see that there's quarreling among the herdsmen, it's easy for us to downplay the issue, right? We've all heard people argue. We're used to this. We're coming up on the holiday season, right? You you know this. Like, it's the season where you make sure that you get everything on your list before everybody else does, and if they beat you to the punch, you treat them like a criminal, right? We laugh, but we all have that in us. Maybe not with Christmas. But we're all good at quarreling, especially when we feel encroached upon. We, we need to know that quarreling is not the way to solve conflict. It only creates more of it, right? Have you ever had a family member encroach on some area of your life? How did you respond? Is there anybody that you're not looking forward to seeing this Thanksgiving or Christmas? Ever had a spiritual family member encroach on your life in some way, shape, or form? I'm talking about a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe they want to lead or serve in a ministry that you've had your eye on. Maybe they land on a different theological conclusion than you do about a secondary issue. Maybe they notice sin in your life and they bring it to your attention. How do you respond to your brother or your sister when it feels like they're encroaching on your spiritual space? Are you prone to be like, man, thank you. So glad God brought you into my life. Or are you prone to defend yourself? Are you prone to quarrel? Is there anyone you're not looking forward to seeing on a Sunday morning here? Or at another church gathering? We quarrel with one another because we want to prove that we're right and that we're deserving of the thing that we're quarreling over. But in the end, we only prove our shared need for grace. Because quarreling isn't evidence of righteousness, Scripture makes it really clear that it's evidence of our sinfulness. James 4.1 says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? The choices we make when problems arise reveal what our hearts are set on in those situations. And we'll see as we watch Abram and Lot each make a choice of their own in this situation Uh, that they're in together, we're going to see how these choices affect where they end up. Let's look at verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Now, if you remember last week, when Abram and Sarai were about to enter Egypt, he said to her, please tell them you're my sister so that it will go well with me, so that it will go well for me because of you. Here he said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me. His tone has changed. 
His tone has changed here. With Sarai, Abram was concerned about himself more than he was about anyone else, and he was willing to use deception to his own advantage. But here, who's he showing concern for? Not himself, but his nephew. And he sought a peaceful solution to the problem by offering Lot the pick of the land. Listen, look at it. It's all here. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. But let's not quarrel. Now, Abram was the head of, the, of his clan. He has the right to pick. He's the one. He's the leader. He can tell Lot, listen, you're going to the right, and I'm going to the left. Or you're going to the left, and I'm going to the right. It was his right to choose who would get what portion of the land, but he selfishly, selflessly, my goodness, that's a hard word, selflessly offered that choice to Lot. But his selfless act appears to put God's promises to him in jeopardy. Remember, this is a theme that we're going to see over and over and over in Genesis from here on out. This, this uh, the theme that somebody in the narrative is going to do something to make it look like God's promises are in jeopardy. Here it is, okay? Abram and Lot were in the hill country east of Bethel. They're in the heart of the promised land. So by giving Lot first choice of the land, Abram risked losing the promised land to Lot. What if he picked left? But Abram's actions weren't driven by selfish deception here like they were when he went down to Egypt during the famine. No, they, were, they, they, weren't, or, or they also weren't carelessly discarding God's promises. It wasn't like he forgot what God said or didn't care. Instead, Abram's actions were a careful display of trust that God would, in fact, keep his promises. Abram wasn't trying to manipulate the situation. He was letting God be God. He was exercising faith by God's sovereign grace. He was responding in dependence upon God instead of himself. It's by trusting in the Lord and his promises that we're able to pursue peace with one another. So often when we enter conflict with someone else, we're tempted to want to control the situation. We're we're tempted to want to control the other person and coax them to do what we think they should do so that they fix our problem. When we fear the potential outcome of our situation, we're prone to try to take charge of it in order to, to get the outcome that we want. But when we do that, then we typically resort to manipulation or force. And I'm telling you this because this is what I do. I'm sure there's at least one other person that can say, yeah, me too. It's by trusting in the Lord and his promises that we're able to pursue peace together. If we resort to manipulation, if we resort to force, it reveals there's something in our hearts that is distrustful of God and his promises to us. God has called us to be peacemakers and that requires us to trust him to work his sovereign grace into the situation so that the outcome is not what, even if it's not what we want, it's what he wants It requires us to exercise faith in his promise-keeping power and wisdom. When we trust God with all the possible outcomes, every, every angle of the situation, no matter what they may be, we don't resort to manipulation or force. Instead, we resort to humility, patience, generosity, love. 
We actually want what's best, not just for ourselves, but for those with whom we have conflict because we remember that they are also recipients of God's grace, just like we are, even if it seems like they may have forgotten that. In Egypt, Abram tried to control the outcome. It didn't end up very well for him. This time he remembered God's grace and he entrusted the outcome to the Lord. This time it would be Lot who would forget and act selfishly. And like we saw last week with Abraham, that, that never leads to anything good. Look at verse 10. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan was as, as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning intensely against the Lord. We're given several clues here in these verses that Lot was entering into dangerous territory, both literally and figuratively as a result of his choices. First clue. Look at how the author describes Lot's decision in verses 10 and 11. It says that Lot saw that the entire plain was well watered, so he chose it for himself. He saw that it was good, and he took it. Where have we heard that phrase before? When the woman saw that the fruit, the tree was good, she took some of its fruit and ate it, Genesis 3, 6. The similar language is not a coincidence here. It's a reminder. It's telling us that, the, that Lot's choice was leading him into trouble. Second clue. Verse 11 says that Lot journeyed eastward. So far, moving eastward in Genesis has symbolized this departure from God's good plan and care. Adam and Eve were banished eastward from the Garden of Eden after they sinned. Cain went out from the garden, from the uh, Lord's presence after he killed Abel. And he lived in the land of Nod, uh, Nod east of Eden. Sinful humanity traveled eastward to build the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God, and now we see that Lot has journeyed eastward to separate himself from Abram, the one to whom God's covenant promises were given. Third clue. Three cities are specifically mentioned here, Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar. Okay? Now, you're probably familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the two cities that were so wicked that God... Uh, sent angels to destroy them with fire and sulfur. And, and then according to the author's parenthetical footnote here in verse 10, he assumed that his original audience also was already familiar with the destruction of these two cities. We'll get to that story in chapter 19. Zoar, maybe you're not familiar with that one, that is the city that Lot fled to for his life during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these cities are associated not with blessing, but with destruction. Fourth clue. Verse 12 mentions that while Abram lived in the land of Canaan, Lot set up his tent near Sodom. And then we see this final footnote here in parentheses in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. There's no candy coating this description. This is what Lot has cozied up to. Last week I said that Abram's decision to go down to Egypt during the famine uh, in Canaan made good logical sense, but it didn't make good spiritual sense. Now, we can say the exact same thing about Lot's decision here. Now, in his defense, he was there. He experienced the famine with Abram. He, he knew that no water meant no crops, and no crops meant no food, right? 
So when he looks out and he sees this well-watered land, what's he thinking? Food. This will supply us. Compared it to the Lord's garden and to the land of Egypt, this was lush, prime property. Made good logical sense to choose that land because he knew that it would be a good source of food for his flocks and his herds and his people. But Sodom didn't get its reputation for wickedness by being discreet about it. Verse 13 says the men of Sodom were sinning immensely against the Lord. That's overt. That's outright. It would have been observable by Lot the moment he got close to the city. The moment he stepped foot into the city, he would have known these people do not follow the Lord. In fact, they hate him. So setting up his tent near Sodom didn't make good spiritual sense because Lot was moving away from promised blessing and toward he was putting himself in the vicinity of impending judgment. Between here and chapter 19, Lot will go from living in his tent outside the city to moving into the city and living there to becoming a prominent leader in the city. Now the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2 that Lot was a righteous man. He was a righteous man who was distressed, Peter says, by the depraved behavior and tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And we'll see in Genesis 19 that the Lord compassionately spares Lot from being destroyed along with the city, but we need to acknowledge that it's Lot's own poor choices that put him in that position to begin with. He was spiritually careless, and and it would cost him dearly. He was saved from judgment. Praise God for his compassion and his grace. But Lot lost everything else. Do the choices you're making make good spiritual sense? Or have you set up your tent near Sodom? Are you cozying up to dangerous and destructive things? Are you flirting with the line and seeing how close you can come to it without actually going over it? If you are, then see God's kindness and grace to warn you through this passage this morning. Don't talk yourself into something logically that is not good for you spiritually. No matter how good it looks, it will only bring you trouble. If you haven't set up your tent near Sodom, if, if you're living in, in, uh, in, in obedience to God and, and, and things are looking good for you, see God's kindness and grace to warn you and me through this passage as well. We're all not only capable of being spiritually careless, but we've all been spiritually careless at times. Every one of us in here can come up with an example, probably multiple That's why we all need God's sovereign grace. Abram is no better than Lot here. He failed miserably in the story that we looked at last week. But this time he has his eyes fixed on the Lord instead of himself. And and when, when we exercise faith, we're fixing our eyes on the Lord. And it's his grace that enables us to do so. Oh, Lord, give us more, right? If that's just our prayer as we walk out of here today, Lord, give me grace to fix my eyes on you, then his word is working, and so is his spirit. Similar to what we saw in the narrative last week, the Lord doesn't show up until this last part of the narrative here, but this time he's not rebuking Abram. He's he's reaffirming his promise to him. Look at verse 14. 
After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre in Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. First time the Lord spoke to Abram back at the beginning of chapter 12, he told Abram, leave your land, leave your family, your relatives, and go to the land that I will show you. The Lord, and then he promised to give Abram land and offspring and and blessing. And now that Abram is separated from his last relative, Lot, you see God is doing something here. This isn't just a random thing. This is continuation of what God has commanded him to do, now that he's separated from his last relative, Abram gets this assurance of God's promises. God expands on what he's going to do. When Abram first entered the land of Canaan and came to Shechem, the Lord appeared to him and he said, to your offspring I will give this land, right? Like he knows, he's there, he's some, it's, it's, it's somewhere there. Here in verse 15, the Lord told Abram to look in all directions, And he said, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. As far as you can look, it'll be yours. Then he told Abram to get up and walk around the land through its length and width so Abram could survey what he was being given. The promise of land is being filled out in more detail here. Again, when God first spoke to Abram in chapter 12, he promised to make Abram into a great nation. Abram, whose wife is barren, by the way. Here in verse 16, the Lord promised to make Abram's offspring like the dust of the earth. It's one of three similes that we're going to see God use to describe the countless number of offspring that he will give to Abram. Dust of the earth here, later we'll see him compare them to the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. Anybody tried to count those before? It's ridiculous. Listen, if you have binoculars, do this this week if the sky is clear. Like look up into the sky and then... Look at the sky in the same spot with binoculars. It will blow your mind. You will see stars beyond stars. The God who put those there and named them, every one of them, that's the same God who just told Abram, I will make your offspring like these, like the dust of the earth. Pick up a handful of dirt. Count the grains. I'm already frustrated at the thought of trying to do that. That would take too long. We know from a couple weeks ago that while physical land and and physical descendants are, are certainly in view here, it's not less than that, there's also ultimately more to these promises because within them, along with his promise of blessing, God has hidden what's called the mystery of Christ himself. As the promised seed of Abram, Christ is the ultimate heir of everything that God promised to Abram. And as those who are now united to Christ by faith in him, we are also heirs with Christ according to the promise. Not through the old covenant with Abram, but through the new covenant in Christ. God's promises to Abram get us to Jesus, and Jesus gets us to God and to an inheritance far greater than the land of Canaan. And as recipients of those of God's grace through faith in Christ. We share that inheritance 
with countless others. Think, just think about this. It, all over the, the course of history, how God has been bringing people to himself, we share this inheritance with countless others who have been and who will be adopted into his kingdom through the finished work of his one and only son. Count the dust. Count the stars. Count the sand. God is saving people beyond number. Because of God's sovereign grace in Christ Jesus, we who were excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world, we, you and me, who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ for he is our peace, bringing us reconciliation with God and with one another through the cross by which he put hostility to death. The mystery of Christ is this, that we are now co-heirs members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Praise God. These are the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 and 3. Are they yours too? Is this what you proclaim by faith? If not, then let today be the day that you start proclaiming this because you can be adopted into his kingdom until Jesus returns. The peacemaking work of Jesus will continue to rescue and reconcile unworthy sinners beyond number, sinners like you and me, and bring us near to God as his adopted sons and, and daughters. Don't you want that? If you don't know Jesus, don't you want that? If you do know Jesus this way, don't you want that for your family member, for your friend that you don't want to see? Our assurance of God's promises rests securely in Christ and in Christ alone because he took our place on the cross. He bore God's wrath against us because of our sin. God has wrath for sinners. It's, it's righteous, it's good, it's right, it's deserving because we've rebelled against him. But Jesus took our place and he bore that wrath. And then he rose rose from the grave to give us his everlasting righteousness and eternal life in him. This is amazing. This is sovereign grace. When we had separated ourselves from God by our sin, Christ paid the penalty and brought us near at just the right time while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So that means that we should walk away from this passage in Genesis 13 today, not looking for ways to separate ourselves from one another when we experience tension together. That's not the point of this passage. I know that word separate is in there several times. Abram is not done with Lot. In the next several chapters, we're going to see him fight for Lot, not with Lot. The land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, but there's plenty of God's grace in abundance to go around. Amen? We're not competing with one another for territory. As sons and daughters of God, our eternal inheritance is secure in Christ, and our faith is not ours alone, but we share it together. It's a common faith in Christ. And so by God's sovereign grace, we must be determined then to fight for one another and not with one another. If separation ever becomes necessary, it needs to be clear that it's God's doing and not ours. 
And even then, it should be done in humility and self-giving love. We exercise our faith in God and his promises to us when Christ, in Christ, when we commit to being peacemakers with one another, when we say, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me. We exercise our faith in God and his promises to us in Christ when we seek what's best for each other rather than what's best for ourselves. Abraham exercised his faith when he gave Lot the choice of land and trusted the Lord to keep his promises. And afterward, the Lord showed him that the promised land was secure. Look around you, Abram. Here it is. Abram moved his tent, and he went to live near the Oaks of Mamre at Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord there. He still had no children. His wife was still barren. He still lived in the land as a foreigner. Dude's in a tent. But he continued to trust the Lord and his promises. And he worshipped. Built an altar. Last week, last week, we, we see, we've seen two Abrams here, have we not? Last week, Abram chose to trust himself and it ended in embarrassment. This week, Abram chose to trust the Lord and it ended in encouragement. This is the ebb and flow of growing faith. We will have weeks like these. Both. Between now and eternity, we'll be faced with many problems. But we've been given all the grace that we need to face them. So let's see them for what they are. Yeah, problems. Let's be honest, right? It's hard stuff. But their faith exercises. They're things to grow us and strengthen us. And that means that we must choose to trust the Lord when these problems arise, when these exercises arise. If we want our faith to grow stronger, then we've got to exercise. And we do that by God's grace. So, let's not follow Abraham's example from last week. Let's follow it from this week. Let's continue to trust him and worship the Lord as we wait for the final fulfillment of his promises, all of them. They will become, we'll see all of them come to fulfillment. We're people that are waiting too. We're strangers in a foreign land. This is what the Bible calls us. Between the now and the, and the next, the, the forever, we're going to be exercising. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace that is sufficient for all of our trials, sufficient to cover all of our failures, sufficient to grow us in obedience and make us more like Jesus. We're thankful, God, that you have given us examples in your word of people that are just like us, who fall and who succeed, not because of anything that is of their own strength, but because of the grace that you've given to them. Lord, help us grow in dependence upon you, confidence in you, so that your grace might be displayed in us over and over and over as we grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Together, we ask this in his name. Amen.